Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. So far this season, we've talked about the bond market from a number of different angles. And in this episode, we want to emphasize that fixed income is a global asset class. We recently launched our second quarter guide to the markets, and on page 42, we have a chart that shows that the US share of global debt has fallen from 60% in 1990 to less than 40% today. So there's a lot more than just the US when thinking about fixed income. Moreover, the Fed has not been the only central bank hiking rates, and global central banks are also facing the challenge of combating inflation in an environment where financial conditions are tightening globally. On today's episode, I'm joined by Ian Steely, CIO for our International Global Fixed Income Currency and Commodities Group here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, to dive into the outlook for global monetary policy and what all this means for opportunities in international fixed income. So Ian, welcome to Insights Now. Thanks for having me, David. So, so far in this season of Insights Now, we've talked about the big opportunity in fixed income markets uh, at the start of 2023. But of course, it's not just about the United States. So where do you see opportunities outside the United States and how does the story differ around the world? I think that's, that's a good point because it definitely has been a global phenomenon. This has been an environment where it's not just been the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. If I look around the world, you've seen Canada take rates up by 425 basis points, the Bank of England over 400 basis points, Australia 350 basis points, and, and a similar move from the European Central Bank. And really, it's that move by the European Central Bank, which I think has been most interesting from a global standpoint, because what that has allowed to happen is the removal of the $18 trillion worth or so of negatively yielding bonds that we had uh, prior to this uh, round of, of monetary policy tightening. And I think that's made a big difference and created a lot of opportunities within the global bond market. And if I just look at the Bloomberg Global Aggregate Index today, uh, it's yielding around 3.5%. Now, remember, this index was yielding below 1% on average just a couple of years ago. So there has been a huge repricing. Um, and actually, that yield you're now getting of 3.5%, that is the highest. I mean, it, it has come down a little bit over the last couple of weeks or so, but it really is still the highest level of yield that you've had since June of 2009, so before the, the great financial crisis. So really, for people who haven't wanted to invest globally, within the fixed income markets for the best part of you know, over a decade now. Finally, we're getting yields that are attractive. We're not seeing negatively yielding bonds. It feels like zero interest rate policy or negative interest rate policy is behind us. Uh, and suddenly, you know, people are getting excited about fixed income again. And it's, I say it's not just a US phenomenon. It is a, it is a global phenomenon. So, so if I finally had time to get excited about uh, global fixed income, uh, but of course, in recent weeks, the, the headlines have been dominated by banking turmoil starting in the United States um, and has implications for the Fed's uh, pathway going forward. And actually, we discussed this with Kelsey Barrow last week. Uh, but I want to turn to the situation in Europe, and particularly given the buyout of Credit Suisse. Are there similar concerns about the European banking system? It's interesting because obviously Credit Suisse happened you know, pretty much straight after Silicon Valley Bank. And obviously, you're going to be thinking about what you know, what is the knock-on impact, and, and is are we likely to see to see more of this? Now, we don't think this is 2008 all over again. Uh, we do believe that Credit Suisse was more of an isolated event here over in Europe. I mean, it's a bank that was struggling from a profitability standpoint for for a number of years. Um, so, I think we should put Credit Suisse to one side. Just look at the overall banking sector in Europe today. And when we 
compare how we look look now versus how we looked prior to the sort of financial crisis, we actually see the banking sector in Europe looking looking pretty healthy. So if you think about all the regulatory reform that has happened over the last decade since since that period, it's all been about creating stability in the banking system, trying to avoid a repeat of of what happened. Um, firstly, you know, from a capital buffer standpoint, the regulation means that you need to, they need to be a lot higher than they were prior to the financial crisis. If I look at the core equity tier one ratio over here in Europe, and that's the measure of, of a bank's capital against the assets it runs, um, we're up about 15% at the moment. So prior to, to, to the financial crisis, that number would have been more like 7%. So that's a significant shift in in capital, uh, in reserves that they've got in place. And we've also had some very harsh stress tests from both the, the European Banking Association and, and the European Central Bank, and, and you know, showing how solid these these banks now are. Um, so that's that's the first thing I would point out that, that is, is a big positive. The second thing is really the non-performing exposure or the non-performing loans that a lot of people were concerned about, particularly in some of the peripheral banks um, post the financial crisis, a lot of that has been cleaned up. Those numbers again have been reduced, reduced significantly. So I think that's a good thing. Um, and then the other thing that we we look at is, you know, are there comparisons between the European banking system and the U.S. banking system? And obviously, I think we've all we've all heard about the differences between the big the big money center banks in the U.S. and, and the regional banks and what their requirements are. When you look at it from a European bank standpoint, they do need to mark to market all of their available for sale portfolios. So that is a difference to what happened to, to SVB. And additionally, in Europe, we've also got less concerns over sort of deposit outflows, um, given we've got pretty low concentration risk, but also there's a lot sort of weaker competition within Europe from money market funds as, as an alternative investment. So I think, I mean, again, these what's been happening in the banking system has, you, know, you would argue, it has been driven by the tightening in monetary policy but when we do look at the overall s- sector, we do believe that there is a, you know, in a much better place than they were prior to prior to two thousand and eight. Well, I, I know that most of our listeners lived through uh, uh, two thousand and eight, so it's very comforting to hear that the banking system, both in the United States and particularly in Europe, as you point out, is in just much a much uh, better condition, a much stronger condition right now. So I think that that is a clearly a big positive, but nevertheless, given all this banking stress on both sides of the Atlantic in recent weeks, do you think that that has some implications for the Bank of England or, or the European Central Bank uh, you know, in terms of their policy going forward, particularly if, we're, if this amounts to some sort of global tightening in financial conditions? If I listen to what the Bank of England and the European Central Bank have been saying um, since the banking, the banking turmoil has occurred, I mean, they've been very clear. They are monitoring the banking situation. They are ready to step in and support the system if they believe it is going to become an issue that would ultimately disrupt financial stability. But I think you'd argue that both the the Bank of England and the European Central Bank have have been very clear that they do believe, as as we've said, the banking system is sound, very well capitalised. And for both both those central banks at the moment their focus remains on bringing down inflation particularly from from the european central bank central bank they're in a they're in a bit of a different situation to the federal reserve 
where there is you know, clear evidence that core inflation is 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 slowing, maybe not as quickly as the Federal Reserve would like it to be slowing, but it's definitely slowing. That's not the case uh, in Europe at the moment, um, and they are they are committed to getting inflation back down under control. And obviously, the, the evidence of that is highlighted by the fact that they uh, continued to to tie to policy. They raised rates by fifty basis points, um, sort of almost during. The, the banking turmoil, you know, indicating again their their resolve to, to try to uh, get price stability back back where it should be. So I think that's how they would focus on it. That said, I, I would argue that uh, there has been evidence over the last few months or so that if things do really start to to break, then actually the central banks are willing to step in. So we've had a really good example here uh, in the UK with the Bank of England and the pension crisis that we had during the third quarter of last year, where the Bank of England did step in, they did intervene in the market, really to ensure that financial stability remained as we were seeing a big sell-off in the guilt space. And what they were very keen to stress was that there can be a difference in response um, between keeping financial stability under control and not disrupt what they were trying to do from a tightening standpoint when it comes to comes to monetary policy so i think that was that was good evidence that at the moment i think both the european central bank and the bank of england do believe that i say the banking system is 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 solid and that they need to continue to fight inflation if that does become more of a systemic problem they will be willing to to uh, to step in and support um as as the authorities in in the us and in switzerland did as you point out i mean I mean, still a lot of monetary tightening over the last year, and uh, and more monetary tightening to come. And I guess the question for our investors is one of the questions for investors is what does this mean for global growth? How much can the global economy take? Is is this going to is this really going to slow down global growth? Now, I think that that's a, that's a really interesting question because up until just a few weeks ago, we were having this debate as to um, you know how the exceptional monetary tightening. That we'd seen over the last year or so, how it hadn't actually been impacting, or it didn't appear to have been impacting global growth. We'd been very impressed by the way that global growth had held up. Whether it was down to, as I'm sure you've discussed previously, around the, the level of uh, consumer savings that are in the system, how healthy corporations are. We've obviously had a, a reopening in China, which has been a big support at the beginning of this year, um, and then over here in, in Europe, the much milder winter. And meant that there wasn't the concerns around elevated energy prices and then the drawdown that that would have on economic activity. So I think we have been in a quite a supportive environment. Now I would argue that's really due to uh, the the very accommodative policy that we had for such a long period of time post post COVID and the fact that the central banks were, were a bit late to the party when it came to tightening policy. But obviously, what we've then since seen over the last couple of weeks is we are starting to see cracks in the system, obviously starting with, with the banking sector within in the US. And, and our expectation is that actually those long and variable lags that we've discussed um, at length um, you know, on the long and variable lags that will occur following the tighter tightening of monetary policy, they are starting to, to show through. And although we might well have you know, reasonable growth coming out of the first quarter, maybe even the second quarter of this year, we do start to feel that it's going to be an impact as we move into the second half of this year, particularly the third third and fourth quarter. And as we sat down, even prior to um, 
to the banking turmoil that we've just witnessed even as we sat down prior to that during our investment quarterly strategy meeting our base case was still that we would be seeing a recession in the global economy over the next call it six six to 12 months and i think that has probably been reinforced by what's going on at the moment so it, it is having an impact on global growth and i think the, the interesting thing now is how do central banks react to that uh, with you know, slowing activity but yet still uh, inflation that's probably a little bit higher than they would like it to be of course one of the really key questions is not just how do central banks in general react but do they react exactly in sync or do we have a situation where the federal reserve is done or almost done with its tightening and the ecb's got some more tightening to go and uh given that um you know if the ecb keeps tightening as the fed nears the end of its rate hikes what do you think that means for the dollar and how do you manage foreign exchange risk uh given that in your portfolios over the last 12 months or so we've we did at the beginning of that period have a very positive view on the dollar and really really for, for two reasons firstly as you mentioned the fed was leading the way in, in tightening policy it started earlier than a number of the other central banks and was a bit more aggressive uh, than particularly the european central banks so that gave us assets a, a very attractive yield advantage um, and then secondly we were in a world of what i would term wrong way correlation last year where all assets were struggling so we had stock markets going down but at the same time as bond yields were going higher and, and bond prices going down so you weren't getting that diversification benefit from bonds so really for a sort of a multi-asset portfolio uh, or someone who was looking to put protection to portfolio one of the only only areas that you could do that was through uh, buying the US dollar um, and I think both of those those uh, situations have are fading at at the moment, the repricing in the in in yields, the, the movement higher in particularly in U.S. Treasury yields, has meant that they are now a diversifier. They will and they should perform well if we ha if we have a slowdown. So they can be that ballast of a portfolio. You no longer need to own the dollar for that. And then and then as you mentioned, we are starting to see economic activity slow more so in the U.S than maybe other parts of of the developed markets uh, we're also seeing inflation coming down faster in the us than in other parts so that allow that will allow we believe the federal reserve to you know, pretty much be done maybe they've got another 25 basis points um in them but the reality is as i mentioned earlier is that the ecb are still laser focused on bringing core inflation down and core inflation in europe isn't coming down we haven't even peaked yet and we're still going through a whole load of wage negotiations so that really means that we are going to see a convergence of yields uh, we believe between the us and europe which means the uh, the attractiveness of a us dollar or to invest in the us dollar uh, isn't to the same extent as it was last year and but when we look at long-term averages and long-term valuations from the us dollar it still looks uh, reasonably expensive to us not as expensive as it did a few months ago but it does still from a from a long run basis look expensive so that means means to us you want to be underweight the us dollar at least relative to uh i would say high quality major currencies like the euro like like the yen um given the our backdrop though of more of a you know a slowing global environment and as i said base case of recession later this year that probably means you don't want to stretch for the 
the higher beta, the higher octane uh, non-dollar positions, you want to be more conservative around that. But I say we do see uh, weakness in, in dollar relative to, to euros, relative to yen as we move through through this year. Given what you say, just said about the dollar and also the fact that negative yields in Europe are gone and gone for a while now, do you think that investor flows are going to return to Europe? I think the simple answer to that is yes. It's it's quite difficult to um, figure out the exact amount of flows that moved out of Europe. Uh, we we know from talk, I know from talking to clients um, that a lot of people just couldn't get their heads around investing in negatively yielding bonds. That just was a concept that they couldn't really really agree with. So they were effectively shifting their allocations away from European fixed income into other areas around the world. And we've looked at a number of a number of different ways. You know, one of the calculations that we've that we've looked at is that you could argue close to three trillion dollars worth of assets moved away from from European fixed income, trying to avoid those very low or, or negative yielding bonds. Um, and I would expect that to reverse. Now, that's not obviously all going to reverse overnight. That will take time. Asset allocators, you know, big sovereign wealth funds, they, they take time to move move their assets around. But over the next, let's call it 12 to 24 months, I would expect that shift to to reverse people to look back towards towards Europe uh, and reallocate there. And again, that's going to be a big support for uh, for the euro relative to the to the dollar. All right. Um, so let's let's move uh, away from Europe for for a bit uh, to, to I guess the, the longest story ever told in finance, which is low inflation and negative interest rates in Japan. We've had years and years of negative rates in Japan, and years in which. They were just trying to push the inflation rate up, but the inflation rate does seem to finally be showing some signs of life. So do you think the Bank of Japan is going to stay uber dovish here, or are we finally going to see some sort of pivot, and when is that going to happen? I definitely think they should pivot. Um, making a, a, an expectation of when that's going to happen is is much more challenging, and we've we've witnessed that over the last the last few months from from the Bank of Japan. But you're, you're completely right. The, the, I mean, the Bank of Japan is certainly an outlier. At the moment, it's the only major central bank to still have negative interest rate policy. They haven't tightened rates this cycle. They're actually still doing yield curve control, so that's fixing the the uh, the yield on ten-year bonds and in. Um, and it just doesn't really make sense to us at the moment. Now we've haven't seen the real spike higher in inflation in Japan that we've seen around the rest of the world, uh, whether it be the US uh, or the Eurozone. But inflation is definitely definitely ticking up and it's definitely showing showing signs of life. And if you look at uh, the Tojo inflation, uh, ex-food and energy, it's currently running around 3.4%. So it's well above the Bank of Japan's 2% target. It's the highest level that we've seen since the early 1990s. And we're also starting to see a lot of wage negotiations go on in Japan as well. So negative interest rate policy, yield curve control does look dated to us and it looks like they need to get out of it. The question is, how do they do it? And I think the the, the way I would describe it is you've got to, it's a bit like ripping off the Band-Aid. You've got to just make a sudden decision to do it. Otherwise, the market is going to push you. And we've seen that to, to already to some extent in December, uh, there was no expectation that they were going to shift the yield curve control band, um, and they made the decision to move it from 25 basis points up to 50 basis points against market expectations. 
And um, then in January of the meeting, they were there was expectations that they might do some further tweaks to it, and they and they didn't. So I think it's really a case of um, when they do it, not if they do it. But it's very difficult to put a pr- exact time around that. I think what's what's quite interesting now, though, is we we're obviously seeing a change in command in Japan. So Governor Kuroda is being placed by Kazuo Ueda um, on the 9th of April. Um, and I think one of the first things that the new governor will be doing is looking at the yield curve control and basically doing a comprehensive review of the monetary policy um, under the view that actually it isn't. Um, it isn't favorable. It is impacting market functionality of the JGB market and it does need to be changed. So I say difficult to say an exact date, um, but our expectation is that over the coming months, yield curve control will be removed. And then there's going to be a question as to whether we do start to, for the first time in a long time, see the Bank of Japan actually raising interest rates. Okay. And um, staying in Asia and just uh, moving a, a, a few a few miles away, let's, let's talk on uh, China. Do you see an opportunity in Chinese bonds? So if you'd asked me this question at the beginning of last year, I would have been pounding the table saying saying yes, there was a big opportunity in, in Chinese bonds. This was, that was a period where the 10-year government bond in China was yielding around 2.75%. And you compare that to the 10-year treasury at the time was around one and a half percent, and obviously, as a, as a house, we had the view that the Federal Reserve would be tightening policy, and and we still had uh, zero COVID policy in in China, and that the PBOC would be accommodative. So, fifteen months ago, it looked like a really good investment, but obviously, everything has changed since then. And if you fast forward to today, Chinese ten-year yields are still hovering around two point seven five percent, maybe a little bit higher uh, than that, but but significantly less than than three percent. Yet, we've seen this big repricing around. The rest of the world, whether it's in the US or the Eurozone or, or most of the other major developed markets out there. So on a relative basis, Chinese government bonds no longer look as attractive as they did. Um, and then actually, when you think about what's happening in China at the moment, uh, we're obviously having the reopening in, in China that we experienced a couple of years ago in, in the rest of the world. And it is supporting economic activity. And we're seeing the high frequency economic data. It's very encouraging. Actually, one of the PMIs that came out today rose to the highest level since November of 2020. You know, we're seeing positive numbers around property sales up 40% year over year in March, you know, box office tickets uh, up. So in a way, we're seeing the activity that we experienced around the rest of the world now occurring in China. So it's unlikely that we're going to see easier policy and lower yields in China, at least in the near term. So at the moment, our portfolios are actually underweight Chinese government bonds and much preferring to invest in the areas of the market where we've seen big tightening and we think the central banks are getting towards the end of of the uh, the monetary policy tightening cycle. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, finally, and um, how about emerging markets outside of China? Should, should investors be looking at EM debt? Definitely. And I think one of our favorite trades at the moment is looking at emerging markets and in particular, uh, local emerging emerging market bonds. Um, and again, this shows the benefit of active management because you do have to group China into emerging market bonds. So there are definitely some areas of the emerging markets you probably want to avoid, but there are definitely some areas that we do like. And I think one of the uh, one of the ways that we look at emerging markets is that their central banks were much more proactive than the developed market central banks. There, there was a lot of criticism pushed towards the developed market central banks that they were very late to the tightening party. They did not get ahead of the curve to, in an attempt to bring inflation down under control. Um, that 
that can't be said for all the emerging market central banks. We saw a number of emerging market central banks aggressively raising rates back in, in 2021 and getting them to quite elevated levels. And what that now means is that as the global economy slows, those central banks that have already done a lot of the heavy lifting, they will be able to reverse that tightening. They will be able to ease um, pretty aggressively in, in some cases to support those uh, the, the economies. And if they can ease aggressively, that should be very supportive for for the local bonds. And I think, you know, again, it's a case of looking at country by country and not just buying emerging markets as a basket. But there are definitely some some real gems out there, for them, particularly when we look at some of the real real yields on offer. And I'm, I'm thinking areas like, you know, Brazil, where you're getting a yield today of close to 12.5%, and we've got inflation running at 6%. Now, I do understand there's some political noise in in Brazil at the moment, but that's a very attractive, you know, real yield. In places like Mexico, you're talking a 2% real yield. And somewhere like South Africa, close to a 4% real yield. So those are much more attractive real yields in the emerging space than you are seeing in the developed markets. Um, the pushback I'm, I would get at times is, well, we're going into a uh, possibly a global recession or at least a global slowdown, and that's not normally a favorable environment for the emerging markets. But I would say that the, you know, the emerging markets have developed a lot over over the last few years. And if you think about EM as a whole, the asset class has been unloved for a long time. There's not a lot of um, we might call fast money or tourists sitting in emerging markets. A lot of people got out of out of emerging markets and haven't ventured back in. And a lot of the uh, local bonds in EM are held domestically. And again, I think that's much more of a of a supportive. So I think actually, and this is an environment where emerging markets this time around, if we do get a slowdown in, in the rest of the world, emerging market local bonds could still give you some very attractive attractive returns. Interesting. Well, so, so plenty of opportunity in emerging market debt and really plenty of opportunity in global fixed income in general. Um, so this is, thank you so much for joining us, Ian. And thank you all for listening. Please tune in to our next episode, where I'll be joined by fixed income portfolio manager, Andrew Norelli for a conversation on credit versus duration and where investors may want to spend their risk budgets and portfolios. Until then, I invite you to read or listen to my Notes of the Week Ahead podcast, where every Monday I share commentary on the latest in the markets and economy to help you stay informed for the week ahead. For even more timely insights, you can also follow and subscribe to my content on LinkedIn. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.